If you have lived in Florida without a doubt, you have experienced the bizarre surprise of suddenly, out of nowhere, seeing a snake. I would wager any amount of money that the snake that you have seen, as I have seen many, many times, is a southern black racer. They are non-venomous and have a knack for finding themselves in the high grass of suburban backyards and brushes. Their size ranges from about two to four feet long. They're pretty small. They got their name from their rapid movement, getting up to about four miles per hour, slipping in and out of sight, just long enough to make your hair stand on end and keep your eye on the bushes for the rest of the afternoon. But there are other black snakes, and not all are as benign as the black racer. There's the black swamp snake, the eastern rat snake, the southern ring-necked snake, the eastern mud snake, the black pine snake, and more. All told, there are 44 species of snakes native to the state of Florida. They reside in the highlands and the low, in the pine forests and the wetlands. With such a plentiful variety of the creatures, one might expect that there would be more concern about our safety with all these biting reptiles around. On the contrary, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission says that most of these snakes, even the venomous ones, are of no harm to humans. Many of these snakes are endangered, and they recommend that if you come across one in the wild, you, quote, just stand back and observe it, end quote. And then, of course, there's the Burmese pythons. They are everything that the aforementioned snakes are not. They are dangerous, they are invasive, and they are not to just be observed. They can get up to 23 feet in length and weigh about 200 pounds. They are carnivorous and kill their prey by grabbing them by the head and squeezing them to death. They have a bold geometric pattern and spend most of their time slithering along the ground. They, to put it nicely, are beasts. It is believed that there are thousands upon thousands of these non-native specimens in the Everglades and its surrounding ecosystem. It's uncertain how many of them there are, but their impact is clear. Native animal populations are at risk, which puts the native ecosystem at risk. The state actually pays hunters to head into the swamps and collect these creatures, kill them, and aid in keeping the ecosystem safe. Now, it is believed that the pythons have been here for decades, but no one is entirely sure why or how they got here. There is one theory that has persisted over the last 30 years or so. The story goes that there was an exotic animal breeding facility at the very eastern edge of the Everglades in Miami. It stored several wild animals, including monkeys and rare birds. Most importantly, it had a few Burmese pythons. Though the pythons have been making themselves known in the region since the late 70s, their population apparently exploded after a massive hurricane hit South Florida in August of 1992 and effectively destroyed that breeding facility. The pythons made their way into the swamp, boomed in population, and have persisted ever since. That is not necessarily the truth, however. It's a story, one of the many, that came from one hurricane in particular. And when things like this hurricane come, natural disasters, acts of God, we can track the numbers. We can follow wind speed, cost, insurance, property damage, flooding, and more, but the personal stories, the cultural stories, are bigger, more ephemeral. For those that try to seek those stories, tracing what comes after the storm is not so easy a task. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, Hurricane Andrew, one of the biggest storms in American history, what came next, and the people on the ground tracking the winds of change. 
It was the summer of 1992. America was in the middle of a presidential election. Sitting President Republican George H.W. Bush was ramping up for a fight against the Democrats. Bush's Vice President Dan Quayle had recently embarrassed himself in June when he corrected a child at a spelling bee. Quayle said the word potato was spelt with an E at the end. It is not, and Bush was struggling with a split party and poor public image. In July, the Democrats officially named Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton as their candidate. The following month, Bush secures his place as the Republican candidate, and within two months he would face off against that charismatic Democrat. The day after the Republican convention on August 21st, a man living in the northernmost part of Idaho named Randy Reaver begins an 11-day standoff with U.S. Marshals that would eventually be called Ruby Ridge. And two days after that, when the sun set on August 23rd, 1992, the people of Florida braced for a storm. It had been 23 years at the time since a storm of its size had made landfall in the United States, and a storm like that would not be seen again for another 26 years. That hurricane was Hurricane Michael, which struck the panhandle in 2018. In fact, at the time, in 1992, hurricanes were common along the coasts, but there hadn't been more than a handful of major hurricanes along Florida's shores in a generation. For example, Hurricane Elena came and went in the summer of 1985, a Category 3 hurricane that followed an unusual path, swerving erratically until settling in on a course for Florida. The storm affected the entire Gulf Coast and thousands of homes were damaged. Now, two months later, in November of 1985, Hurricane Kate swept through the Caribbean and eventually made landfall in the Panhandle. They both peaked as Category 3 hurricanes. The hurricane that came in August of 1992 was a Category 5. When it formed, it took a week to eventually reach Florida's shores, and in that time, it gained in power to become the third Category 5 storm to strike the United States in history. To make matters worse, the season that year had been relatively quiet so far, and this was the first named storm of the season. It was given the name Andrew, and by the time it passed, it had affected the Bahamas, South Florida, and Louisiana. According to the National Park Service, what made Andrew so devastating was not just the storm itself, but the potential of the damage was at a new height. With beachside development skyrocketing in the mid-20th century, thousands of buildings were in the strike zone. As prepared as Floridians could be, the NPS says that forecasters feared that many residents of South Florida had not faced the might of a hurricane like Andrew before. And at midnight on August 24, 1992, Andrew made landfall. If you've never seen the path of a hurricane after the storm, it's hard to describe. The damage that comes from any natural disaster is surreal. Homes and domestic spaces filled with water, buildings ripped open, debris in the streets. The weather clears in the days after, blue skies and sunshine, and the rubble below feels out of sorts, not quite right. I don't know if they've just opened for business for the first time, but you can see the people pouring out. And this is probably their only opportunity uh, to get some food and, uh, you know, something to feed the kids or, or, or do whatever. And we've got... Uh, Maurice, I guess, is uh, hooked up in Skycam. Maurice, uh, what are you seeing out there? In this footage from WSVN, the Fox affiliate in Miami, just three days after the storm, a mall is laid bare with huge portions of the roof missing. A hotel's outer balconies hang loose from their connection to the main structure. Water floods roadways and parking lots and any open flat space. 
The reporters over the footage just read phone numbers for carpenters, for government employees, for emergency supplies. One parking lot is filled with hundreds of folks lined up to get food from a store. In Dade County, according to the New York Times in 2017, quote, more than 125,000 homes were destroyed or damaged, and 160,000 people were left homeless, end quote. When it was gone, 64 people had died. In surveying all of the loss, according to journalist Craig Pittman, one neighborhood became forever connected with the hurricane because of all the destruction. Sort of the poster child for that was uh, the Country Walk subdivision that was uh, built by Arvida, which at that time was a division of Walt Disney, believe it or not. And um, the Country Walk houses were very badly made, and they were, I mean, they were just almost obliterated. Craig has been with the Times for decades and has written many of my favorite pieces in the last few years. He has a humor and joy in his work, but also a cutting truth that only comes from witnessing Florida at its best and at its worst. Back in 1992, in the days surrounding the hurricane, Craig's editor sent him and a crew of other reporters to track the storm and those living in South Florida as it came in. Some of the reporters just covered the initial storm and left, and I was in the group that was sent there and told, okay, you know, when the when the storm passes, here's what you do. We want we want you to do in the long term stories. And uh, I had two assignments. One was well, I had to help out with the daily coverage, but one assignment was um, pick a neighborhood, single neighborhood, and find out how the storm impacted them, and then go back in three months, and six months, and a year, and write about how things had changed. You know, how much recovery they had done problems they ran into. He tells me his editor at the time, Susan Taylor Martin, had been on the ground during another Category 5 hurricane four years earlier and saw how life during a hurricane, how people survived, was essential coverage to the story itself. In Miami, after Andrew, the devastation was overwhelming and the neighborhood Craig mentioned, Country Walk, became known for how much of it was damaged and to what degree. The buildings were built very poorly in the first place with low quality materials used in construction. Rather than nails, staples were blasted through walls and roofs. This fundamentally made the buildings weaker. The shoddy construction and quick builds were all due to the aforementioned population boom. You know, and part of the problem too is, you know, uh, Florida gets about, I think the average is about 900 new people a, a day or a week moving in here. and so. Uh, a lot of those folks have never experienced a hurricane before. Cheap homes were built quickly and in bulk to compensate for a huge influx of new citizens, most of which had no relationship with hurricanes when they arrived. Throughout the state in this period, not just in Miami, homes like this were thrown up to compensate for the hundreds of thousands of people who came to call Florida home. One study by the University of Florida says that from 1985 to 1990, the population increased by a net number of about a million people. After the storm, nearly as many people left Florida as came to stay. Once the storm came and went, people were not as interested. But before the storm, when it was that glistening green paradise, houses needed to be thrown together. And what came next, came next. Country Walk was severely destroyed by Hurricane Andrew. 90% of the 1,700 homes were destroyed. But things changed. 
The amount of buildings destroyed or damaged and the amount of people left without homes and residences right after the hurricane was unacceptable for the state. Within two years, South Florida had new regulations for buildings. There needed to be improved roofs, stronger windows, and hurricane shutters in all new buildings being built. Four years after the storm, the Florida Building Code Study Commission was founded to determine how best to protect buildings against natural disasters. They found that all of the communities around the state had different building codes, and this was a conflict in ensuring safety. A statewide set of rules had to be made, and by 2002, a new set of rules were established to keep all new buildings in all communities safe. And it worked. After a quartet of hurricanes hit Florida in 2004, the new rules proved to be effective. The buildings built after 2002 were able to sustain hurricane damage much, much better. When Craig Pittman was there, Right after the hurricane came through, he spoke to two households from opposite ends of the economic spectrum, as well as residents from one specific neighborhood. It was one near Homestead Air Force Base, and the initial people who had, who had moved in there were all Air Force people, and by the time the storm hit, I think there was only one Air Force family left uh, in that neighborhood. And they were, and the guy was retired, but he liked being close to the to the PX, you know, for going in there and buying discount groceries and stuff like that. And everybody else had come in after that. And it was, um, uh, it was a mix of older and younger people, uh, which was good. And it was fairly well contained. You know, it was just, I think it was just 10 houses in this cul-de-sac. So that made it a more manageable, uh, grouping to talk to about what had happened to them and that kind of thing. And it, this is, this is going to sound weird, but as a reporter, the great thing about covering a hurricane in Florida is, for most people, it's the most traumatic thing they've ever gone through in their lives, and they're eager to talk to talk about it. And so everybody was everybody was very eager to tell me what had happened to them, what their story was. And talk they did. Power was gone. There was holes through their homes. Within a few days of the storm passing, looting was at a peak, and federal aid had yet to arrive. In the neighborhood I was covering, uh, I'll tell you, it was just picking up the pieces and trying to get by day by day because um, most people had lost power. And, and if, unless you had a radio, a battery-powered radio, you had no way to keep track of what was going on in the world outside your little part of it. People were without power or supplies, and on the ground, it looked like no help would ever arrive. The Dade County Emergency Manager, Kate Hale, went on local television in a long interview with words that rang loud and clear on the national level. She was specific in her anger, level and precise in every word she said. She was furious. For the people of Miami, she was sounding the alarm. All I know is that people are coming down here with everything and we're trying to get a system to be able to accept and distribute this. But again, 
we have about 85% of the search and rescue on those devastated buildings still ahead of us. We are still in a stage where we're looking at emergency food and water. There are still areas of the county we haven't been able to get into to establish communications. I don't know if these people have radios. I don't know if they know we're out there trying to help them. All I know are a lot of people are saying, why aren't we doing more? We're doing everything we can. Where in the hell is the cavalry on this one? Got on live TV and said, where the hell is the cavalry? Meaning, why isn't the federal government helping us out with this? We're, we're waiting for assistance and nothing's coming. And that really kind of galvanized the, uh, the administration to send troops in. And all of a sudden it turned into, a, you know, like a big um, military encampment there with helicopters flying overhead day after day after day. And the military taking care of controlling intersections and, and that kind of stuff. But up until that point, it was, you know, people had, people just knew, you know, hey, my house is gone, my neighbor's house is almost gone. You know, there's like one, one house on the block that didn't suffer any damage and we're all just kind of stunned and trying to figure what we're going to do next. What do we do next? And studies after the storm showed that the hurricane left many with deeper problems, not just destruction and insurance problems, but in the years following the storm, psychologists noted an uptick in several extreme psychological behavior, including PTSD among the population, but especially in children. Divorce increased by significant margins, and those who were able to moved out of Miami, though some not very far. Uh, I always thought it was really interesting that uh, a lot of people who fled Miami-Dade County, they only went one county north and then settled down again. And it's like, okay, you realize this is going to get you away from, from hurricanes, right? I mean, you're, you're still, you're still in, in Hurricane Alley there, but that seemed to, you know, reassure a lot of people that, oh, I'm not living in Miami anymore. I think people were telling themselves whatever they needed to tell themselves to feel better, to feel safer. Storms came and went in Florida, but none of Andrew's caliber, not until Hurricane Michael in October of 2018, which decimated the coasts of the Panhandle. Communities there are still recovering 16 months later. It's been 27 years since Hurricane Andrew, and we can sort of track the lines of everything that has changed since then. We're still so close to Hurricane Michael. It's unclear what could change next. And that is the fundamental problem of writing about and studying a hurricane. It's hard to determine the tale of an event like this, how long its effects stay with us. There are easy ways to track change, like building codes and population decreases, but the way we feel and the way things hang with us, that is harder to put a pin in. Every Floridian has a hurricane story. I watched Hurricane Charlie roll over my home. I was eight. My neighbor's lawn furniture flew off the patio and into the retention pond beyond my home. When the wall passed overhead, my father took me outside and we stood on the lawn, staring at the sky as a large circle of clear evening sky swept over our little neighborhood. Within a few minutes, rain returned. Craig Pittman remembers his first hurricane, too. I can't think of the name of the hurricane off the top of my head, but um, uh, it was in the 60s. I'm, I'm from Pensacola originally. Okay. And um, my mom has always been kind of obsessed with, with hurricane tracking. Um, I would actually trust her prognosis more than I would trust the National Hurricane Center because she's been <laughs> at it longer. 
but she's the kind of person who would get a fresh paper map, you know, a hurricane tracking map at the start of the hurricane season every June and put it up in the, in the kitchen. And I do remember one that, that blew through when I was a kid. I remember um, it was late at night. We could hear the wind howling outside. Uh, my mom was on her knees praying and um, uh, we didn't know what happened, but we, you know, we, we lived in a, one of those classic Florida concrete block, one-story houses, and um, however strong that hurricane was, it wasn't strong enough to, to mess up the house at all. We all remember the first time, and we all remember the worst time, and that affects how we prepare for the next time and, and how we think about every big storm or every hurricane or every major terrifying event like this. And we tell ourselves things to make it easier during the worst, when the hurricane comes again. We tell ourselves that we've been through it, and, and we know how to get past it again. We tell ourselves that if we move just a little bit north, not Miami, but Fort Lauderdale, then we'll be safer. We look to people like Kate Hale, fighting for those suffering. We look for people like Craig Pittman, willing to collect the stories. And we see the kind of strength that we may need. We look to the future. A future with stronger houses and sturdier support networks and smaller storms. And we hope that the next time Andrew comes, bearing a different name, we will be ready. We have to be. The next storm always comes. Before I go, I want to wrap up a little bit about those pythons in the Everglades. Craig has written about the python hunters. He's actually traveled with a few in the swamps. And there are about 40 of these licensed python hunters in Florida. There are so many stories and different accounts of how the population of Burmese pythons has shrunk and grown over the years. Here's Craig. The initial report of a python in, in the Everglades dates to 1979. That's when they first saw one. It had been run over on the highway at the edge of the park. And uh, nobody knew where it came from. And I think it was like an 11-footer. It was a big one. Park biologists knew that people were already, you know, turning their pet, their pet snakes loose around the edges of the Everglades. Um, then in 92, when, when Andrew hit, uh, and this, this part at least is verified, that there was, there was an animal breeding facility there on the edge of Everglades National Park, and it was apparently didn't have very good security for its animals. And when the hurricane came through, it, it turned a bunch of them loose. Uh, snakes, monkeys, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of wild animals got loose. Now, that would account for the sheer amount of pythons that are supposedly loose. I'll remind you that the number, according to Craig's research, is stated to be between 10,000 and 100,000. But the story of pythons running loose from a breeding facility has a few holes in it. And uh, what I've been told by, by people who were around at the time is that the, the owners of the breeding facility actually did manage to round up most of their animals, you know, the monkeys and so forth. But they couldn't tell me whether they rounded up the pythons too. So it's it's all kind of nebulous. Um, it may be a, it may be a um, an urban myth that that's where the py python population exploded. But um, it's certainly the preferred story that the people in the herpetology business uh, and hobby uh, like is that it wasn't the fault of the careless pet owners. It was you know a natural occurrence. As if we needed any more urban legends or mysteries or nebulous facts in Florida. Add the Everglades pythons to the long lists of questions with answers 
that Florida refuses to provide. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you are brand new to this show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really amazing episodes in our archive that I would highly recommend that you check out. You don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. Might I recommend some episodes similar to this one, like our series on Henry Flagler, or our two-parter about the Indian River Citrus Company. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show grow and become more visible, and honestly, it brightens up my day. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me an email, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Craig Pittman. Craig Pittman is one of my favorite writers around. He has a few books out there. You may know him from his book, Oh Florida, but he also has a brand new book called Cattail. I'll let him tell you a little bit about it. It's my new book. It's the fifth book I've written. Uh, it's called Cattail, The Wild Weird Battle to Save the Florida Panther. Uh, it's a story I've wanted to write for 20 years. And, I, you know, because it's... There are fascinating characters involved. There's lots of twists and turns in the plot. Um, people who are heroes turn out turn out to be villains. People who are villains who might be villains turn out to be heroes. It's the story of how panthers went from being voted by our school children as the official state animal of Florida in 1981 to being um, very nearly wiped out in the mid 90s. And they were, we were down to around 20 left. Uh, and they were suffering from genetic defects and, and other problems. Uh, and to, uh, you know, now they're doing better than they, they have been in the past. They've had about a tenfold population increase. They're about 200 now, you know, not, which is not a lot, but it's better than they used to be. I just picked up my copy and I am so excited to read it. I love everything that Craig writes, but he happens to be writing about my favorite topic the Florida Panthers. So go check it out. There's a link for you to purchase your own copy at the description below as well. You can also do some additional research about Hurricane Andrew and Burmese pythons in the Everglades at the link below. Thanks to Lauren Nix for artwork used in this episode. You can find her on Instagram at lauren.nix.photo. Her last name Nix is spelt N-I-X. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can check out some more of their fabulous music at the link below as well. I'll see you next Monday with a brand new episode. Until then, I am Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. Have a good one.